Hello and welcome to the Professional Practice Podcasts with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. Today we'll be looking at the issue of professional insurance cover and various liabilities in architecture and construction. And to do that, I'm joined by Bola Uladimeji, Managing Director at REN Managers, the REN Insurance Association, that's W-R-E-N. Welcome, Bola. Thank you very much indeed for your time, uh, for joining us. As we always do with these things, just give us a little bit of background, a little bit about yourself, where you studied, how you got into what you're doing now. Thank you, Austin, for inviting me onto your podcast. Um, I'm actually a construction lawyer by background. I spent a number of years working in private practice in the city uh, before I decided to go in-house. I've uh, spent a lot of years working for main contractors before I joined Tyndall Riley, um, Tyndall Riley & Co., which we are trading as rent managers and we manage the REN Insurance Association. So what, what is that relationship? Because obviously we know it as REN, and then there's this kind of uh, separate named organisation, Tyndall Riley. What's the relationship? The insurance company is called the REN Insurance Association. What Tyndall Riley does is that we are insurance managers. We help the association on a day-to-day basis. We run, do all the things that, you know, an insurance company would normally do. So, for example... Uh, we would look after underwriting, um, claims handling. We look after the actuarial and, and investments. Uh, we also hire risk managers and also lots of lawyers, you know, as contract reviewers to go through all the contracts that our members want to enter into. So I suppose it's a symbiotic relationship in that we help the insurance association on a day to day basis run it in the way a ins- normal insurance company would be run. Got it. So look, I, I also can't let it go that you move from the law to insurance. There I was thinking that you could get a better living on the law than maybe insurance, <laughs> but, but that's me being flippant. But what's what was the shift? What what encouraged you to move? Over to I insurance? think because, I suppose because I, I've worked in construction for so many years, I suppose I've sat in the different seats around the, the project table, as it were. I've worked on the employer side, understanding what developers, owners, financiers, what they're looking for that I've worked for engineers and I've worked for main contractors. So I've, I've seen, I suppose, you know, a lot of what goes wrong, you know, on the whole picture. And professional indemnity insurance has always been part of that. You know, it's a requirement for every consultant. So it's all, it wasn't really a, a, a huge step to go from there. And then all our members are architectural practices. So it wasn't a huge step. Okay, I believe you. So the uh, in terms of insurance itself, then, can you just, we'll just dive in. Can you just explain the differences between the various insurances? Now, and obviously, your PI is your thing, but mm-hmm. give us a general overview, though, employers insurance, public liability insurance, and how you, how you view those. Okay, so um, PI employers and public liability, they, they belong to a class of insurance that we call uh, liability insurance. So they provide protection against claims um, resulting from injuries or financial loss, damage to people or property, and that sort of thing. And these policies are designed to pay the third party, not the policyholder. So where you're looking at professional indemnity insurance now, that would cover, you know, where you're doing professional work. And it's not just architects, accountants, lawyers, surveyors, People who are providing professional advice or doing any sort of design, professional indemnity insurance would cover negligence or where they fail to perform a duty and the client suffers loss. Where you look look at employer's liability now, that would be the scenario where 
protects the big business against liabilities from either death or injury to the employee of the organization. And where it comes to public liability, that would just simply mean any third party. So if there's injury to a person or to their property, and then that insurance would respond. So give us give us an example from the world of insurance. I mean, as it happens, very often these are crossovers between the world of insurance and law, aren't they? So uh, give us a you know case study or something on the benefits of insurance cover or the necessity. Uh, necessity. Okay. I mean, first of all, you know, the, the architect's code, for example, that references professional indemnity insurance. So I think if you don't have PI, you'd be in trouble as an architect because you'd be in breach of your code. I think secondly, how I look at it is that consultants in general, as I said, not just architects, they operate what you might call on a low capital cost base. They don't really have a lot of cash in the bank. The assets that they do tend to have is, you know, in their office, their computers, their desk, you know, their furniture, that sort of thing. So if you enter into a job, you know, as an employee, you need to have employer's liability insurance for your, for your staff. And so the dangers are if you do enter into a job and you don't have adequate levels of insurance, I think you're probably familiar with the case of Freeborn and Macau, where the judge was very critical of the way in which the architect managed the whole project and what was eventually built bore no resemblance to what was designed. But I think in that case, he had the minimum requirement of 250K. But I think the losses were twice that, maybe like 500K or so. You know, he became bankrupt and then, you know, he lost his home. I think he was sanctioned by the ARB as well and was um, suspended for the register uh, for a period of time. So, I mean, that in and of itself is an example of what can go wrong if you don't adequately have you know, the right levels of insurance to, you know, to manage the business and the work that you're actually doing. Yeah, I mean, that was the uh, glass cinema box yes. in the wealthy man's house. And the ARB have got pages and pages of similar cases of architects uh, messing up. So uh, always worth a browse, uh, just to kind of give you fair warning and remind you why insurance is useful so that you don't become one of those statistics <laughs> on the ARB website. Could you mention... Um, uh, adequate and appropriate insurance, and it, it tends mm-hmm. to be this two hundred and fifty thousand pound figure. First of all, there's something called uh, each and every claim, mm-hmm. uh, and be worthwhile kind of working out what that means. You know, whether it's a rule okay. of thumb, but also just when we talk about adequate and appropriate, how do we assess that? Because the legal case you just mentioned, I'm sure the architect wasn't expecting no, there to be a kind of yeah. much more significant uh, claim on his insurance. Okay. The what the ARB have done is just to state a minimum requirement. I, in reality, it does depend on the value of the project. You know what you're doing and what sort of damage you could cause in the work that you're doing. If you know if things go wrong, you shouldn't try to relate it to the fees. It really is the value of the work. What damage could you possibly do on a project? That's really what matters. Um, And you've got to take all these things into account at the start of the project to help you work out what sort of level of PI would be required. When we look at things like each and every claim, or sometimes it's referred to as any one claim, this means where the limit of cover you have applies to each claim, regardless of how many claims you make across the year, because PI is an annual policy. So it's regardless of how many claims you make throughout that policy year. So it's unlimited. 
So if you had five million each and every claim, it would be five million each time, no matter how many times you make a claim. But, you know, if you've got multiple claims arising from the same cause, then it gets treated as the same claim. However, this is different from aggregate. You might also see the term aggregate. And aggregate just means that, you know, it's a single amount that's, that's put together and it's considered as a whole. So once you get to that aggregate limit, that's it. Um, you know, you can't bring any more claims. But the 250,000, I think they recognise, you know, just because you have a small project doesn't mean small liability. It, it just doesn't work like that. So it's, it's about what damage you could do. What's the value of the work? What are you doing on this particular project? Really just to help to set out some minimum requirements to give architects a guide. Because 250,000 has been around for a while, hasn't it? And, and we're living in a cost of living inflationary hell. So have you heard on the grapevine or any idea that that might be going up? or is it- I haven't. I'm not aware of it going up. But as I say, they put it there as a the minimum requirement. And they make it very clear that they expect, you know, and that it's your responsibility as the architect on a job to look at this and to assess it. So I don't think, it, I don't, I'm not aware that there's any changes in the pipeline. And I'm not, I'm not sure that it necessarily has to be raised. It is very clear that it's just a minimum requirement. Uh, and, you know, we know and understand that a small fee, a small job doesn't necessarily equate to small liability if things go wrong. The flip side of that, I suppose, is that, especially post-Grenfell, when, uh, you know, insurances have gone slightly askew or mm-hmm. uh, whatever, people are getting paranoid about it. I don't know which is which. But generally, there, there's a lot of elements now which are being excluded, as I understand, from insurance cover. You know, whether it's uh, obviously some cladding elements, yes, which, are dodgy, yeah. which are dodgy, asbestos has always been a kind of worry. What does it mean now, in practical terms, for, for professionals' liability when there are other issues which are being taken out of the general PI framework? It means that you have to pay really close attention to the policy that you're trying to buy. I I don't think people should treat it like car insurance. You know, we're trying to look for the cheapest thing possible because, you know, when you're driving a car, you generally know if you hit something or you get hit by something or you run over something. Whereas with PI, if you're designing or you give advice, um, you might not know for years that it's caused an issue or it's caused financial, or it just might not manifest itself for a number of years. So I think then it becomes more important commercial insurance as you go through. Policies might be different, they all have some sort of limitation or qualification exclusion clauses. You've got to check to make sure that whatever policy you get covers, for example, the work that you're doing, uh, if you're doing a lot of basement work, there's no point getting you know, signing up to a policy that excludes cover for basement works or or fire or you know cladding or whatever it is. If that's what your main business is, and you can't have a policy that excludes cover for those, it it just means you've got to check your policy carefully. Make sure it's a policy that will respond to provide coverage that you need, defence costs, and those sorts of things in the event that you get sued or you get a claim through the door. But are there any standards? I mean, well, obviously, there are millions of standard clauses, I'm sure. But I, I, I'm dreading using the phrase get-out clauses because I'm talking to somebody on the other side of the fence. <laughs> but do you see what I mean? I don't think so. I mean, you know, even if you talk about cladding, 
if you do a certain amount of work or you're a practice of a particular size, there's no getting away from cladding because it's because of the nature of what it is. So I'm not sure that there is a get out. Um, you just have to know your industry, know what you're doing and, and tread carefully, really. But premium. Sorry, I don't know if I've understood your question. No, correctly. no, I'm, I, I kind of waffled that one. I just something came into my mind. Uh, it, it is on the basis that premiums have gone up. Yes. Yes. So uh, this uh, is uh, what we would call a hard market in the sense, you know, on the back of Grenfell, you know, part of the fallout from it, when insurers realised there's a lot of things coming out of this, then what we did find is that um, certain cover was being pulled in the sense that they decided they're not covering fire or cladding, that sort of thing. So that means there's less insurance companies in the markets who are covering. That means premiums will go up. That's a hard market. Then the PI gets more expensive from for everyone. And of course, insurance is, is global as well, where you have lots of floods or you've got COVID and all those things impact on the insurance industry. And although indirectly related, you know, those things still have an impact on, on premiums elsewhere. Very useful. Going slightly off track, you did mention, you know, giving advice as also being something which may be covered under professional indemnity insurance. And there's that kind of cl- those classic cases of chatting to your neighbour asking about, you know, will this lintel be satisfactory? And you say it looks okay to me. And then two months later, there's a claim. I think you have to preface advice when you're something off the cuff like that. But also equally, is it is that sufficient to really establish some sort of duty of care as well? You know, a conversation over the fence and it's that sort of thing. So I think I can't give blanket advice like that. And there have been cases where, Maybe they were friends. I, I forget the name of the case there. Was it a project manager case? I, um, I can't quite remember the details, but they, they were friends and they were then they started helping, again, high net worth individual with their project and they got into trouble and, and so on and so forth. So, yes, I do think you have to be quite careful about the advice that you're giving and it shouldn't be off the cuff advice and that sort of thing. You know, so make sure that if people go off and act on whatever you said and, you know, you thought you weren't uh, having a, a serious conversation, you, you've got to maybe perhaps preface this with, you know, this is advice from your mate in the pub type thing to make sure that they don't take it in a way it wasn't intended to be yeah. taken. Never have chats in the pub uh, about <laughs> lintels. That's the, uh, that's the advice. Coming back to good old hard advice here, in terms of the Grenfell Tower disaster and the aftermath of it there's been changes and some of these changes uh, I, me- I remember you mentioning it in a discussion uh, i was with you with you a year or so ago and i didn't even realize the implications of it the consequences of what's happening post grenfell on the defective premises act and the liabilities mm. that are now going back many many years can you just give us a brief explanation of that okay so the defective premises act was amended by the building safety act which came into force on the 28th of june 2022 um so what it does it it, it changes certain aspects of the i'll call it the dpa uh, so what the dpa originally did is to create statutory duties on contractors and and others to carry out work where it was in the original form new build um in such a way and, and with you know using such materials to ensure that the finished product would be fit to live in and so 
it was originally designed to allow people who wouldn't ordinarily have that contractual relationship with those sorts of parties. So, for example, leaseholders and, and that sort of thing, you know, it allowed them to be able to bring a claim against them where the dwelling, and it applies only to dwellings, became uninhabitable. So what the Building Safety Act, then, you know, there are some key changes. It doesn't just now refer to new build, but also to existing work or an existing premises, that sort of thing. And the key thing about the changes is about the limitation period. So when it first came into force, it was six years. But for projects completed after what we call the commencement date, so that 28th of June, when the Building Safety Act came into force, that's the commencement date. So for projects completed after commencement date, it's 15 years going forwards. Uh, for projects completed before the commencement date, then you've got this retrospective 30-year period. And they also gave an additional year if you know that date was imminent when the act was passed. So you know we've now got quite long limitation periods. Uh, and it's from the date of completion of the construction of the dwelling, not when your services were completed. So, you know, so you could still get caught even if you're, you know, you finished your services. And that's the practical completion date rather than the final certificate. It, it, the yeah, I mean, it, it does say completion of the construction of the dwelling. That's what it says. So yeah. I wouldn't say... I wouldn't stretch it as far as certificate making the defects. Just It just says completion of the construction of the dwelling. What's the implication of, the, of that, the DPA uh, changes, uh, on um, contractual responsibilities if you've signed your contract under seal or under uh, deed uh, or under hand? What's, what's, the, what's the implications now? The DPA is a statutory remedy. Yeah. Um, it's a statutory remedy. So it's actually separate from a contract in that irrespective of what the contract says, if you breached your statutory duty, they can still pursue you under that statute. So contractually, most people have six years or 12 years. They could still sue you within that time frame in any case. And if they wanted to uh, and they've got specific issues under the DPA, they can still pursue you regardless of what your contract says. Wow. So okay. there's really no getting away from this and you can't no, get uh... out of it or, or seek to exclude it or limit it in that sort of way. But it is a statutory remedy. No, no. I mean, obviously that'll be, you know, 50% of the, of the listening audience thinking it's a wonderful, necessary uh, adjustment. And I'm sure 50% will be thinking it's a horrific uh, imposition. So we'll, we'll see. It is a challenge. For, it is a challenge because now, you know, you've got to make sure you retain your documents, your project information for up to 30 years. But retrospectively, I mean. Retrospectively 30 years for things that had, had completed prior to that 28th of June. 2022 yeah. dates. But obviously um, people would have maybe thrown their stuff away after 12 years. I mean, maybe they shouldn't have, but they made a lot. Of, I know a lot of people well, have, Yes, I'm sure know. lots of people might have, or they've been destroyed for, you know, some other reason. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there are defences under the statute, which I think is probably beyond the remit of today, but there are some defences under the statute. Okay. Uh, the cat's edit. Uh, <laughs> 
Um, all right, look, the um, the ARB, uh, we've already mentioned them, but they say that a lot of the market has been affected by a global downturn. And I just wondered how that's kind of playing out in terms of your industry. So what's, the, what's the implications of the reassessment of risk in construction by insurance well, markets? I think, as we were saying before, I think what they mean by that is, is that there is a harder market mm. in the sense that there are fewer insurance companies offering such cover post-Grenfell. Certain cover might have been pulled, um, which causes premiums to go up or they restrict cover and that sort of thing. So I, I think, you know, by global downturn, I, I'm assuming that's what they mean. Um, right. And that would translate to a harder market versus when PI becomes cheaper in lots of players in the market wanting to place that sort of business premium comes down and that's what we call a soft market okay is the expectation from your side that we're reaching a certain tipping point where things might actually start to soften um there are some insurance companies that are offering unlimited cover in terms of for going forward from a particular date for cladding cover and and that sort of thing there's still a lot of fallout from Grenfell. Mm. Um, we've still got provisions to come under the Building Safety Act. We anticipate some changes to the building regs. And there's the whole industry having to absorb all these changes and how it's going to work in practice with the regulator and the various gateways and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think we have to watch and see and, and there's still a lot of buildings that haven't been the recladding hasn't taken place or finished and that sort of thing there's still a lot mm. of claims coming through so i think we we're still going to wait and see really i wouldn't say that the market is suddenly softening no no it's uh it's market i don't know about the market but uh, the world seems to be going a little bit crazy so we'll see how that has implications but let me just ask you about um again just very a couple of clauses or, or phrases that we, we often hear just to explain what they mean joint and several liability and the net contribution clause what what's their relationship what does it really mean as we know there's lots of players on a project and we know that when something goes wrong on a construction project it could be any number of people, and in fact, often is more than one culprit, isn't it, really? So joint and several liability means that the claimant can recover 100% of the loss from one particular party, even though that party may just be 20% responsible for that loss. I mean, they have to be responsible for something. You can't just go around suing people and, you know, they don't they don't have a case to answer. So so long as you've got some sort of you're bearing some sort of responsibility for some of the loss they can recover 100 percent from you uh, and that's the principle of joint and several liability now the answer to that to help guard against that is a net contribution clause it's a well-drafted net contribution clause because that limits your exposure to your share of that loss so if you're you are that party that is only responsible for 20% and you've got a net contribution clause in your appointment or collateral warranty, whatever it is, then they would only be able to recover that 20% from you. And you know that's what a, a well-drafted net contribution clause is designed to do. And before we started, you'd mentioned this thing, uh, which I think it follows on from what you've just been talking about, kind of the liability being shared. 
So if you are running your practice and you're allowing some of your employees to work from home, again, how does that pan out in terms of professional integrity? First of all, will the company tend to face the liability for the um, actions or inactions of their employee? Uh, and really, how how best would you kind of cover for that in your in your insurance documentation? Um, I think generally, when you take out insurance, business insurance, I mean, this is what it is. It is the organisation as a whole. So the practice will be taking out that policy. The practice is is the sum of the people, isn't it? So it's not really looking at individuals and looking to hold them responsible you know, the policy will just respond on behalf, you know, the, the practice as a whole. I think the working from home, it's, it's the same difference as you working in the office if the mistake is made. I think the working from home issue relates more to being able to access or controlling, uh, making sure you have access to information or drawings and being able to carry out your work uh, as you normally would do in the office. Okay, I won't, I won't labour the point. Okay, the RIBA, let me just quote them. It says, it's vital that you notify your insurer at the earliest opportunity of any circumstance that is likely to lead to a claim. And obviously, you know, talking to students specifically, it's almost like an instinct, you know, if, if you have a head cold, if you've missed the bus, you know, you notify your insurer. Everybody has this instinctive idea that that's what you have to do. But then people warn you that if you over-notify or if you pester your insurer, that, you know, they're going to see you as a bit of a risk liability and your premium will go up. What's the what's the balance in this conversation? Um, I think the reality is that policies differ in terms of their wording. So you need to make sure um, that you check the wording of your policy you know, understand what it says. I think also you can, people can take advice from their brokers as well if they've got a broker involved. But I think it's probably better to err on the side of caution. Uh, the challenge is that if you notify too late and then sometimes things don't always appear like they're a claim at the outset and then you get further down the road then you realise that this is a claim that you should have notified to your insurers because you know, the client can ask you back, oh, something's, you know, come and have a look at this and so on and so forth. And you get further and further drawn into assisting them. And then you end up in a situation where actually it's a, something you should have notified to your insurers. And, you know, and if you do it too late, they'll say that, well, you know, you didn't do it in accordance with the policy. You haven't notified us immediately or as soon as it became apparent, you know, whatever that wording is in the policy. So you could face those sorts of issues. I would you know, at least have a conversation with your broker to understand um, how often you should say. And I think if something is really of a concern, if, you know, if you're not sleeping at night because of whatever issue, I think you should be saying so. And we certainly encourage our members, if something is of a concern to you, at least pick up the phone and have a discussion. No, it's very, very good advice. And I, and I think you've been very generous talking about, you know, insurance in general. I thought we'd round off by focusing on, on REN itself, which is known as a, a mutual insurance company, which uh, seems like a financial kind of organization from another era. One of my favorite movies, It's a Wonderful Life. Then mm -hmm. if you recall, you know, George Bailey works for the Building and Loan Association. Uh, and then all these friendly societies and Victorian cooperatives and things like that. So what, what is a mutual in general and how does it work for you? 
So a mutual is, is where the members of the mutual, uh, well, I suppose the insurance association is, is actually owned by its members. So they club together, they pool their money together, and we don't have any shareholders. So, so they operate at cost, and anything that's surplus gets returned to the members. We're here to provide the broadest cover that's sustainable in the long term, and also to pay claims that are that are legitimate. We're you know we're here to pay claims that are legitimate, not to avoid paying claims as you often find from commercial insurers. And, and that's why there's a lot of upfront work done with our contract review services and with our risk managers, which helps our members to know when they're entering into this contract, whether or not there are issues with cover. So is, is it a, an exclusive club? I mean, is there an optimum size number of members? Or, or, um, or I mean, we got... don't have an optimum size. You've got to keep the balance between the size of the members. You know, small, we've got range in, in practice sizes, small, medium and large. You've got to keep that balance. So it is a club in that sense that, you, you know, you can apply to become a member and that sort of thing. And because of post-Grenfell, we do a lot of due diligence to make sure that the people that are coming into the association, their body of work is not such that would put the association on Juliet risk from the, you know, the type of work that they've been doing historically and that sort of thing. Very sensible. I expect nothing less from an insurer. But, <laughs> but it does say uh, on, on your website where you say um, the REN courts provides members with control over their professional indemnity insurers. Yes, yeah, so through uh, the members, through the board of the association so uh, they have a say in the extent of the cover uh, they have a say in respect of that so they are able in that sense to control the cover you know if they wanted cladding cover to be completely unlimited and you know they could vote that in but you know you've got to weigh those things up because at the end of the day you've got to balance these things across the whole membership. So you're sharing the pain and the gain if you're a club. So you, you just got to make sure that there's the right balance. And so they take advice from us and, uh, and the board is there to represent the members so that they can, you know, that voice is there and they get to make that decision. We're at the end, Bola. So just to finish, is there anything I've missed out on or you think that architects or people are thinking about starting up a practice that they ought to be aware of? I don't think so. I, I think the key thing is, you know, for, for me, just speaking, speaking from a PII perspective, I think just making sure you've got a good policy. Don't treat it like car insurance. <laughs> Make sure it covers the work that you do. You know, understand the terms, the limitations, the qualifications and, and things. And if you're not sure, ask questions. Ask questions of your, uh, of your insurer or your broker if you've got a broker that you're using. Terrific. Well, that's the end of this particular edition. Thanks very much. Paula Oladimeji, Managing Director with REN Managers, the REN Insurance Association, contactable on www.renmutual. That's W-R-E-N, like the bird, renmutual.co.uk. My name is Austin Williams. If you want to subscribe to listen to our archive on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify, please do, or wherever you get your podcasts, obviously, and listen to more interviews with equally informative guests. So for now, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on the Professional Practice Podcast.